the upcoming presentation is a two-man power trip of wrestling podcast production. And welcome to JJ, the JJ Dillon Podcast. I am your co-host, JP John Paz. And with me, as always, is the star of the show, two-time Hall of Famer, the leader of the Four Horsemen, the second greatest manager of all time, former WWF and WCW executive, James J. Dillon. JJ, how are you doing this evening? Great. Good to talk with you. And uh, just getting into the holiday season, had a wonderful uh, Thanksgiving with uh, one of my daughters and, and uh, a friend of hers. Uh, really, really enjoy turkey. With the, it's always nicer when it's uh, when it's family. And unfortunately, uh, I wish all my kids were in one place. But uh, as they as they grow up and 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 go their separate ways, it's uh, kind of hard to get everybody at one place at one time. But uh, I had a nice had a nice dinner and really looking forward to the closing of the year and uh and uh and a new year a lot of uh a lot of things coming up with the new year with um with the uh, wrestlemania this year being in the tampa area and um charlie hartman armstrong that uh I've, I've done a lot of appearances with has already uh got some feelers out uh, on some potential appearances in the tampa area uh leading up to wrestlemania so Gives me something to look forward to in the in the new year. Awesome. And as far as Thanksgiving, are you used to being off on Thanksgiving? You know what I mean? Like I know NWA used to do double shots and Starcade and and all these crazy sort of things. Is it weird for you kind of to be off and relaxing on Thanksgiving instead of working? Well, the last couple of years I've had it off, but uh, traditionally Thanksgiving uh, was uh, was a big day in the wrestling profession. Uh, um, you know, virtually anywhere around the country, it always seemed that there was a big holiday show for, for Thanksgiving, and and in some cases, uh, even a, a Christmas Day too. Charlotte used to have a big show on Christmas Day, and uh, once you get past Thanksgiving, it kind of uh, slows down in terms of, uh, you know, appearances for, for the balance of the year till we kick into the new year. And WrestleMania this year is going to be in the, in Tampa. And that's one of my uh, one of my favorite areas of the country. I like the warm weather and knowing that uh, the, the horseman thing is, if if you haven't heard me say it already, which I'm sure you have, it's uh, it's a legitimate thing. It's a group of guys who um, 
you know, we go our separate ways in terms of where we live and the lives we lead, but we also look forward to the times when we can get together and we're always genuinely happy to see each other. Uh, I think the fans sense this because every time that we have, even if it's just uh, two of us, let alone, it's very rare for all of us because of, uh, of where we live and the things going on in our lives to, to, to all get together in one place uh, over almost 25 years or so, uh, probably count the times on, on one hand. Uh, but looking forward to it. Uh, uh, Florida, like I say, is uh, has always been a, a special place to me. Uh, Barry Wyndham lives in uh, in the Orlando area, so I know I'll be spending some time with him. And of course, uh, Arn Anderson. Uh, all the horsemen are, are special to me with Tully, and even with Ole, uh, who is is kind of basically retired and I don't get to see him all that often but with Arn um, really got really grown close to Arn and uh, and Barry too and don't see Tully as much as down in San Antonio and but uh, looking forward to the first of the year and I'm sure there'll be some 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 point that um, that they're working on something to get all of us together which I would really look forward to Absolutely. And for today's topic, we will go back to the WWF once again, the mid-90s, and we're going to be talking all about The Click. Of course, talking about The Click, the backstage group in the World Wrestling Federation during the mid-90s when it was Shawn Michaels, Triple H, Scott Hall, Kevin Nash, and Shawn Waltman, the 1-2-3 Kid. Of course, you know there were other quiet members like uh, Aldo Montoya, a.k.a. P.J. Palacco, but we're really going to be focusing on Hall, Nash, Michaels, uh, Levesque, and, of course, Sean Waltman. What is kind of the first thing that pops in your mind when I mention the click in the WWF in the, you know, the basically the mid-90s? Ah, you mentioned all, all of the key players, all the key names, and it's it's really the the... The, the Four Horsemen was a, a legitimate grouping of people. Uh, I, off, I say often imitated and never, never to be duplicated. And I'm not saying that, uh, uh, that the click was, uh, was an imitation of Horsemen, but it, was, but it was similar in that there was, again, a group of guys that uh, enjoyed each other's company and, and uh, made appearances uh, where they were all there and... Um, you know, I had a chance to, to be around them, too. They were, they were all friends and guys that I respect. It's interesting. This is more backstage, not so much in front of the camera as far as a cohesive unit. Really, later on in their career, would they be known for the NWO and the DX and kind of real factions kind of come out on screen? But this was more of a, a backstage, which is so interesting. When you start becoming a smarter fan, you start learning more stuff, listening to student interviews, reading a lot of books, reading... Um, some dirt sheets and some newsletters and things like that. You find out about this backstage group that was full of politics and, and, you know, why they kind of formed and how they formed. What was your kind of first, like, inkling that, like, okay, these guys are all friends, but they're all getting together as far as the click, and, and they're going to kind of form their own maybe backstage group, maybe for politic reasons or for whatever other reasons? You know, I, I can't I can't put my finger on one specific date or a, a venue where it seemed to be the case, but uh, 
and it, it was like all of a sudden you realized that uh, when you were, when you were seeing one, you were likely in many cases to see them all much much like uh, the situation with the, with the horsemen. So I knew that uh, that as part of the four horsemen, we we you know we had a genuine um, camaraderie. We we uh, were were close to each other, friends knew that uh, even though we were scattered in terms of where we lived and the lives we had that, you know, if there was ever a situation where somebody had a, uh, an hour of need, you know, we were just a phone call away. That's, that's how, uh, how close our relationship was. And um, the, I think the clique uh, um, kind of was very similar to that. They, they were guys that, uh, again, all of a sudden, you you would see one, you would see them all, and and again, similar to us, they enjoyed the the company of each other. Now, the one thing that I always thought was interesting and really stuck out when you hear stuff about the Click is they were the first guys. I mean, I could be wrong, but they're really the first guys to kind of come out publicly and really talk about it. But maybe the first guys that kind of got together and were like, "Hey, what's your paycheck? What's your paycheck? Where'd you get paid?" And obviously, you know, we talked about in prior episodes, you were the one kind of handing out a lot of the, the payments and saying what the, what the you know percentage is and what their cut is for the game, what the cut is for the show. So was that the kind of some of the first time you heard guys really openly talking together about what you were paying them? Uh, probably was because in the wrestling profession, um, even though there was uh, like the horseman was looked at as a, uh, a a unique grouping of guys. We were still all individ- individual uh, contractors, and the same thing with the with the click. It was just the, the same idea. That now, if if they um, you know shared uh, you know their income and and what their payoff was for any particular event or something. Um, that was un- that was unusual, uh, as it was with with the horsemen, and of course Flair was uh, was the was the the head of uh, our grouping for a while. And Rick as a champion um, was 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 paid very well, and it was accepted within the the industry that whoever was the reigning NWA champion uh, often got a percentage of the the gate, which. Um, was not the norm for anybody else. Uh, we, we, you, the longer you were around the, the the business, you understood that, um, you know, when you went to an arena, if it was uh, not a big house, whether it was just the size of the town, the fact that there was a problem that week that maybe the the TV show got preempted, and and that that could easily have an effect on uh, on a town um and and you could look out there and see what was there and have some idea of uh, an approximation of what your what your payoff would be for that night and you've been around <laughs> the business as long as I have and the other guys and you for the most part you were you were you know were very close and and you knew whether it was a, a fair compensation for what you could see uh, was out there in the house, and and everybody that's on the card knows that 
for the most part, what drew the house. And at the same time, um, mostly everybody started at one point at the at the at the bottom of the bottom rung of the ladder, and you had to pay your dues for the most part. Um, even Flair, to a degree, though he he uh, he fast tracked in in terms of uh, you know his uh, um, box office appeal and. And thus his, uh, you know, his income. So uh, Rick and and Rick, to his credit, was different from a lot of others in that he also heavily invested in his in his career. Now, as independent contractors, you know, you you uh, you know you choose your own gear, you buy your own gear, you pay your own gear. But Rick took it an extra step. and I met him uh, after he. Well, it all started in the in the Carolinas, and George George Scott was there at the time. But Rick um, actually bought a limousine and hired a, a driver with a uh, you know uh, <laughs> a chauffeur's outfit and drove him to town to town. And Rick uh, was was smart enough to realize that. It was worth the investment because he had a lot of confidence in his own ability, and it really set him apart from everybody else. That you know, Rick shows up in a limo and has a driver, and you know, the, the, there's a lot of fans that are come early and wait outside to to see uh, the wrestlers as they arrive, and you know, you had guys that uh, you know drove uh, a Mercedes or a Cadillac, and you had guys that. Uh, Drove a Buick, a Pontiac, and and a, and a Chevy as well. So because you're independent contractors, and some guys were very very cognizant of their image, and didn't want to want to be seen by the fans, uh, you know, pulling up at the arena in a, in a Chevy. They wanted to because of this concept of an image. Um, I've I referred to it as the myth that people see you on television and think that, well, you're on TV, you're a huge star, they must be paying you a fortune, you're rich. And so the expectation is, you know, something wrong with the thing if, you, if you're a guy that <laughs> pulls up in a, in a Chevy. They expect you to be in, a, if not in a limo, certainly in a, on a high-end car. Now, Flair, there's no doubt, was kind of the clear-cut leader of the horsemen as far as as the wrestling end of it was concerned as far as the click really it was diesel who kind of separated himself from the pack in 94 when he becomes the world champion and holds the title for almost 365 days before eventually losing it to bret hart but as far as diesel what were your thoughts of him winning the title did you think that that was kind of good for that time bad for the time you know what was the thoughts on on him as world champion in the wwf uh he was worthy of carrying it he, he certainly had the size, certainly had the athletic ability. Uh, he had, uh, I don't know, I, uh, to say a drawback would be a bad choice of words, but typical to a lot of guys, uh, you know, he had, he had played b- a professional basketball um, for a while in Europe, and, and as a result of all that, uh, ha- had bad knees. And there's guys, uh, 
like Bill Goldberg was another guy who had a uh, a pretty good football career, but then suffered some knee injuries. And you could go ahead and make a name for yourself and have a pretty good career in wrestling, even working with uh, knees that weren't uh, 100%. What did you think of him as champion as far as drawing and, and basically being the figurehead or the you know the lead guy for the WWF in, in that time period? Um, Diesel did a good did a good job. He, uh, like I say, he uh, he understood the business. Um, he was a businessman in, in terms of uh, me working in the office and and having to uh, interact and do business with him. Um, never had a problem with him. He was uh, he was all he was all business. And um, again, he had all the he had all the, everything. All the boxes were checked off. He had the size. He had the experience, he had the athleticism, and, uh, and was uh, one of the outstanding uh, legends and stars in our profession. Now, creatively, when that kind of <laughs> comes up and says, okay, who, who are we putting the, the title on next? Who is going to become the next world champion? What's the, the thought process on him like from Vince? Vince just says, like, okay, um, I love this guy's size, I love his look. Let's put the title on him. Or is there something more that goes into it? Like, okay, he's huge. We're getting away from the steroid guys. He's just a huge, massive guy. You know, we still want to be larger than life. I think that was part of it. That, that certainly uh, the size was a great asset for Kevin that set him apart from most other guys. But he wasn't just a big guy. He was a big guy that could go out and, and, and perform. And... Um, as far as a guy that's a champion, most promoters, um, you know, give extra perks to, to a guy that's at the top of the card and the, and the champion. Um, and they, they're, they're paid, paid better and, um, and and receive a lot of perks in terms of, you know, they're more apt to get some time off than where other guys are, are having to, uh, uh, Hit the road with with greater frequency, with not many days off, in order to make make a, a decent living in the profession. When he wins the title, he beats Backlund at MSG in about eight seconds. It was one of the quickest title wins of all time. I mean, they really kind of not went out of their way, but you know, MSG is is New, it's New York, it's WBF's bread and butter. Did that play a factor in it as well? They really wanted to kind of give them the big push, like okay, you're going to win at our home home basically home base. You know, I don't remember what the the thought process. I had, I had forgotten that the uh, that the title change uh, w- was that quick, and I it kind of reminds me of an era, uh, you know, several decades before that when. Um, Buddy Rogers became champion in Madison Square Garden, and he he won the title in uh, something like 24 seconds or something. Not quite as not quite as quick. And in that case, I remember that um, the promotion at the time I think felt that that if he won the title that quick, that a lot of the people would would maybe the fans might look at it as being just a fluke that he wasn't really uh, uh, a, a superstar at that level. And it, there are some promoters that, that would say, okay, I'm, 
He's going to be the champion, but he's going to do it real quick. And almost with, uh, with um, I don't know how to say this the right way, but if it was a guy that, that sometimes was, uh, you know, a little bit uh, of a struggle to do business with him, there are I've, there are promoters that say, okay, well, you're going to go out and win the title in like 30 seconds. And there's that risk that the, that the people will not believe it because it was so quick. And that's a way of taking a guy who um, was maybe becoming difficult. And I'm not saying that, that Kevin was, but I'm just, there have been cases where, where a guy was – was difficult, and I think, okay, you win the title real quick, and you know you got the belt, but the fans aren't accepting you as a as a champion because they don't feel that you you know you've earned that level, and it's it it, it can actually be used as a way of uh, taking the wind out of the sails of uh, of some talent. And that was, of course, Bruno beating Buddy Rogers in 48 seconds, and I think he, uh, Buddy Rogers may have been being a bit difficult. And Vince Sr. definitely wanted to get the title on Bruno at that point. Obviously, the issue with Backlund wouldn't be like that, right? I mean, they no. just want Diesel to try to look strong. And talking of the Rogers situation, and and I, I spent a lot of time with 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 Buddy. He was, uh, uh, God, he was a very charismatic figure. He 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 had been a cop at one time in Camden, New Jersey, and I I was from Trenton, and so when Buddy. Uh, ascended and and you know reached that level became champion he was friends with uh with bob orton senior bobby davis was the manager mm-hmm. uh it, i remember chief big Hard. i remember haystacks calhoun bobo brazil were i mean the depth of talent in in that era was uh was just unbelievable and you know there were people that maybe thought that uh, that buddy winning the title real real quick um, would the fans wouldn't accept him because it was such a quick victory, and it, and it, and there were some promoters that thought, okay, we're making the champion real quick, and then all of a sudden you'll find out that um, maybe you that you weren't the huge star that you thought you were, and as crazy as it sounds, uh, it could be part of a plan where certain certain promoters would uh, would 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 be able to control some guys by putting him in a, in an awkward situation like that. Now, the WBF in this period, I wouldn't say it's a total killer period with the new generation, but it definitely is a downswing from the Hogan era. There's no doubt about that. I mean, when you, when you lose basically, you know, the biggest star in the business, it's not really going to probably trend up where it's going to trend down, but it wasn't dying per se. I mean, it's still doing good business and just was down from, the business, obviously, that Hogan and, and that guy, you know, that era kind of did it and the Macho Man's of the world and stuff like that. But as far as the click and having backstage power, I always thought it was kind of crazy that they were kind of wielding some backstage power. And you hear a lot of stories of, of, of you know, them not controlling Vince, but Vince having to go down to Indianapolis and having a meeting with them and them kind of controlling Vince in certain ways. Kind of hard to believe in certain aspects because if the business isn't great, how could these guys have so much political power? I mean, am I kind of going maybe too into the weeds there? I mean, am I making sense on that? You know, absolutely. And, uh, 
a guy gets a chance, a guy like uh, Diesel gets a chance to become champion and to carry the, the load for a while. He's going to do better financially, but it also gives him um, more power. And the promoters uh, would be reluctant to make a guy champion if they thought that they didn't still have a significant amount of control over that individual. I mean, you didn't want somebody, you didn't want to, you didn't want to put a guy out there if you were a promoter and give him that opportunity and then all of a sudden have him be just uh, totally impossible to deal with and where you would regret that, oh boy, I, um, I, this wasn't such a good idea. I'm sorry that I put the title on him and then figure a way that uh, as soon as possible to get it off him so that the promoter, promoters always want to be in control, which is under, understandable. And they, they, uh, you know, they considered the, or, or, or controlled the purse strings. And it's just, it's, it's just, it's a crazy, crazy business. And everybody wanted to get to that top level. And I, I, I remember being, in, and I, I could think of the guy's name, and, and I wouldn't want to mention it because I wouldn't want to embarrass him. But there was a, there was a guy in Amarillo, who, uh, you know, would look at guys who were above them on the card, and he would kind of be uh, a dressing room. Uh, I don't know. I, I can't even think of the right word to use it, but he would be somebody that they complained a lot and made it, made it clear that he thought that, uh, he was being held back. And, 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 and this happened a lot of times where, um, where the booker also was the, was, uh, at the top of the card and making, making top money. And, if you're a promoter, and I don't want to single Dusty out and use him as an example, but it's hard not to. But if if you have a territory, and Charlotte would have been a great example, a territory that uh, everything is cyclical. And if there's a time where the cycle is down, and it's and the business is crazy, it's like when the cycle is down, it seems from a creative uh, standpoint that no matter what you do or what you think might have been successful somewhere else or whatever is going to be what's going to kickstart your, your business and your houses. And, um, and you, you make an effort to give that, whether it's one guy or a tag team, an opportunity. And then for whatever the reason, it just, it doesn't happen. And I've, I've saw that a lot too. And, but the same token, there are times where there's a guy there who is, uh, is, has the, uh, you know, he's got all the qualities is, uh, maybe not, uh, charismatic like some other people, uh, to, to that degree, but still an asset on the card. And all of a sudden he, because of, you hear the the uh, statement about being in the right place at the right time. And a guy will be somewhere where somebody gets hurt and is off the road for a while. And all of a sudden it creates an opportunity for another guy that was 
you know, maybe one step, two steps down from that top uh, echelon. And all of a sudden, this guy gets that chance and he goes out there and just shocks the whole world that, and I call it that it factor. And if, and if, if for somebody that spent over half a century of his career in, in the business, if, if I could somehow be able to, to predict with 100% credibility that something was going to be a success, whether it was an individual, a tag team, or a program, um, I'd, I'd be living in a mansion somewhere. And, and not, not that I have any complaints about where I am at this stage of my life. But, I mean, you, you, if you had the ability to, to just know with 100% certainty that everybody that you uh, anointed for an opportunity was going to not only live up to your expectations, but so far exceeded and those 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 guys just it's it it, it it's a crapshoot. There's you there's a guy that you think has everything going for him and has all of the the qualities. He has the size. He has the attitude. He can he can interview and you put him out there and you put him at that upper level and all of a sudden uh, it just the, the it's the fans or the judge and jury. And you go out there expecting that uh, he's going to blow the roof off the business and the territory. And you do okay, but not anywhere near what you thought you were going to do with that individual, given that push and that opportunity. And that's what makes this business so unique. Because if, if every, any one individual was 100% right from the creative standpoint as to who they were going to bring in to a territory or give the big push to, uh, this business would be an awful lot easier. But even with somebody like Diesel, now he, you know, he he paid off because he was a big guy, got the opportunity, went out there. But there are other guys that were big guys that were put in a similar situation that that it didn't happen. And you you don't know often until you uh, actually have to make the commitment and give it a try, and then maybe the initial um, response isn't what you thought it was going to be, but but you you keep pushing it to to give him every opportunity to succeed, and then uh, after a period of time, you realize that for whatever the reason, he you weren't getting the results from that particular individual. That given his size, his experience in the business, his athletic ability, just again, there's that it factor that the fans uh, are the judge and jury on. Do you remember Vince having to go to Indianapolis or some, maybe some house shows or something to kind of wrangle in the click and, you know, kind of basically they're kind of yielding too much power and they're, you know, not up to no good, but maybe they're doing something politically. Maybe they shouldn't. Do you remember at all Vince having to kind of step in and be like, all right, guys, what is going on? What are you guys up to? You know what I mean? Like basically kind of corral them. Uh, I'm not. I'm not saying that that never happened, but I don't have a specific recollection of them being some being a individuals or a group that were so high maintenance that Vince was having to go to towns that he uh, otherwise wouldn't have. I mean, he, he would, Vince would always go to uh, places where you had TV or a big show and he was always at the garden. 
Um, but and 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 some guys. Um, and Vince Vince was very very smart. He he knew that that certain guys had to be massaged at that level. Uh, maybe given a little bit more open access to Vince than some other guys wouldn't wouldn't they would, you know go to TV and uh, you know they would go in for a private meeting with with Vince and maybe be in there for 45 minutes and where other guys and and guys would be waiting outside on a, they have a row of chairs for to have their their few minutes with Vince to either discuss a problem or wanting some direction on where their character was going um, it it it's a business that was simplistic in many ways but complex in so many other ways and especially you know if you're one guy and all you have to worry about is your own career it's um, that can be frustrating at times but when you're somebody who is on the creative side that has to look at the whole roster and you and I, I think I've said this before too that you, you pretty well you well to be as successful at that level and creative, you have to learn pretty quick of which guys, uh, when they need a little bit of straightening out or a little bit of motivation, some guys it can be a boot in the butt and other guys you couldn't do that. You have to be more gentle with a pat in the back. And it, it's at that level, you, you have to learn who has to be treated in certain ways to get the maximum uh, benefit out of them and keep uh, peace and harmony in, in the locker room. Do you remember any problems or issues with them? Because I, I mean, obviously you're doing talent relations. You're dealing with a lot of different talents. Do you remember any problems? Like obviously a bulldog would joke around or call him the click and then Luger kind of really created the moniker, the click. But do you have any kind of recollection or memories of them really causing problems? No, not not really. And um, I I was very fortunate in that, uh, and I think it's it, I was blessed with the personality of being able to get along with everybody on the talent roster, from the guy that was in the opening match or the first couple of matches that was going out there and working hard, and knowing that you had to keep him motivated, but also realizing that that was going to be his, his, his niche in your roster, that he, he was never going to get up to the top. But you never want to have a talent feel that it is impossible for them ever to get to that level. Because uh, that's what motivates a lot of them, is to think that, that uh, they're going to go out there and work really hard or invest in a, in a new ring outfit or something to help themselves to uh to get and a lot of times it happens uh the old right place at the right time you know a, a key person uh suffers an injury and if and, and where they are on the card i mean you you it's not like you can then take and groom somebody for two or three months you have to have somebody that you can immediately elevate that you have some confidence in that can step into that position. And, and a lot of times that's how opportunities uh, uh, happen for guys that then seize that opportunity, um, go out there and, and make the effort 
so that they they show that uh, that you're giving them that opportunity was a was a good decision. And eventually, if they prove that they can be a, a commodity at that level, then they stay at that level. And maybe when they go to another territory, uh, you know, word spreads. You know that this guy they gave him a chance, and he went out there and and wow, they. You know, he just was the right place at the right time. So-and-so got hurt. He jumped in there and just uh, far exceeded anybody's expectations. And so that opens doors for him when he goes to another territory to come in at, at a higher level because of his track record. Rager Ramon, a.k.a. Scott Hall, another member of the Click, probably the senior member. I believe he's the oldest member of the group. But uh, I guess technically Nash since he was a world champion, would almost be decreed the leader of the group. But I feel like Ramon is kind of the, the real leader, the kind of the <laughs> real starter of the group. You know, like maybe like the, the lead voice. Or, you know, a lot of the, you know, Sean and, and Triple H get a lot of different things. I don't know if you realize it through their career. They get it from Scott Hall or, you know, not steal it, but they kind of borrow it from Hall and, and do different things that he did. And he was kind of the, the cool one before the re- oh, the other one were other ones were recognized as being cool. What are your kind of thoughts on Razor Ramon, especially at that point in the WWF? I remember, you know, I can close my eyes. I can see him. He had that black spit curl uh, in his forehead, and he, he, he used to have a toothpick in his mouth. And mm-hmm. uh, he just, uh, it, and some guys, it, it's a persona that, that they that they morph and and and. and finally get to a comfort level where where they become that person and i think they they have to become that person to go out there and have success at the absolute highest level it can't be in other words it, it was in there all along but they just had to be the right place the right time and have the opportunity for that part of them to to, to emerge and come out and then you and you can't always predict it uh, as to if that person has the ability. There, and there, were, there was one guy in particular who I was in Amarillo, and there was a guy who was a a good solid mid card guy who just complained constantly that he was being held back that he saw himself as a as a as a top guy and to the point that it uh that it became a a little bit of a distraction on the uh on the talent roster and i remember uh saying well you know we're going to give this guy a push and just see where it goes you know he he, in his own mind, thinks that uh, that's where he should be. And I remember um, the, in Amarillo, the Albuquerque was the big, big town. And so we, 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 which you could push a guy because they did t- a TV in, in uh, Albuquerque uh, with live interviews in, in, the, in the studio, which some of the others were, uh, were done on on tape and, and sent to the towns. But in Albuquerque, it was done live every, every week because Mike London, who was the promoter, um, and I think part of it, it, it hits a, a, a town 
It was the best town in the territory where you made the most money. Mike London was, uh, he, he, he had a bar. And Mike Padusis was a bartender, an overtired wrestler. And Mike London would do his, uh, where, you, where you would have a, like a professional announcer uh, doing the, the interview segments for all the other towns. In Albuquerque, if you worked Albuquerque, even if you were in Colorado the night before and were, you know, 250, 300 miles away, plus you had to drive from Amarillo to get to Albuquerque or get to Colorado and then into Albuquerque, and the TV would come on uh, at 9 in the morning. Now, the TV would be the show that that the, that you would bicycle around that started in in, in – uh, Amarillo first. The only difference would be where you would do it, promos for all the other towns and then insert them on tape and send them to the towns. Mike London wanted to do all of his own. Pro- he he bought the whole hour to start with, and he was unique in that he did not put out posters. He put no newspaper ads, and you didn't know if as a wrestling fan what the matches were including the main event in Albuquerque that night until nine o'clock in the morning on Sunday when you when you tuned in and Mike London came on and told you what the card was that night and I remember it's like doors open at six o'clock first bell at seven and in between the matches which is where um you know, you you would have commercials, and and in the other towns is where you would put your like event centers to promote the live events for whatever that market was. Those, those interviews were all done live in in Albuquerque, and Mike London did the interviews. And it would be so frustrating because, um, I mean, I was never the biggest or the best in terms of physical, but I had a, a very very successful career. And, and, and it was in part to that I, I worked very, very hard, gave all every night because that's what I had to do to stay on top. And I put a lot of time and a lot of effort into my interviews and, and wanted my interviews. I realized to, to, to be at that level I had to do interviews that were a little bit different than everybody else. And that involved a lot of thought. Um, And with Mike London then doing the interviews live in Albuquerque, you would have a train of thought for a a match that you had that night where you, where you would have one of those, the two, two minute interview spots and Mike and Mike would, you, you'd have this, like I was always a storyteller. So I would have my, my little story as to the importance to me for that match that night and to get into, uh, you know, rather than just the, the thing about, you know, trashing the baby face. And uh, I, I always wanted my interviews to be different. And I would give a lot of thought as to how I was going to to handle that interview. And I would I would I was used to being with an announcer that pretty much just did the lead in talked about the show and then put it pretty much held the microphone and let you carry it from there. But Mike London 
would would do the lead in and then you would you would start on a thing and you you'd have this thing of where you were going to go and build up your interview and then right in the middle he would ask you some question that was totally not in sync with with what you were saying in other words <laughs> he'd ask he'd ask you some silly question that would break your train of thought and oh my god and it was so frustrating but the funny part of it is that was the best town in the territory where you made the most money. So how could I say that 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 I could say it was wrong because Mike London was there doing the interviews. That was his style. And you had to you were never going to change him. So you had to be, be flexible enough to say, well, I had this whole thought in mind of what I was going to do. And a third of the way in it, all of a sudden, Mike asked me something or makes a comment that just completely derailed the direction I was going. Now I've got to on the fly adjust to it. But like I say, it was the best town in, in the, in the territory and where you made the most money. Love it. Now, as far as best town, in the territory, WBF style would definitely be New York and thinking of New York, obviously we mentioned it before Madison square garden and May 19th, 1996. I don't know if you'll remember this exact date, but you'll definitely remember what, the story is, and that is, of course, the infamous curtain call, the unscripted incident, if you will, that happened on that date where, you know, uh, Scott Hall, Kevin Nash, Triple H, Shawn Michaels basically go into business for themselves. And after their matches, um, they all hug in the ring. They break kayfabe, you know, and it's captured actually by a fan on camera. And everyone's like, "Whoa, what the hell? You know, the heels and the the faces are hugging in the ring. What you know, like what's going on? They're breaking kayfabe. They're basically yep. showing that that they're friends. What were your thoughts? And it all infamous night. It all happened very spontaneous. There was no warning to it, because there was like a curtain in the back that you could like be back there and peek through the curtain, be able to see the ring, and on that given night. One of them was in a match, and then the match ended, and one of the guys went out there and joined him, and then all of a sudden, another guy just walked past me and went out. Pretty soon, the whole clique was in, in the ring, and it was, it I want to say it was an impromptu thing. I don't know that it was something that had been really thought out or planned. It just, because they, they pretty much would do whatever the moment dictated for them and they would have no trouble when one guy was out there and he'd have a particularly good match or something happened. And two other guys would go out there to hug him and congratulate that all of a sudden that would bring this great response from the crowd. And then the other guys that were part of the click would go out there and pretty soon they, the whole, they're all in the ring. And like you say, there were times where it would be a, a mixture of, of baby faces and heels and you think, Oh my God, they, they're killing the town. And they didn't. And I, I can't explain why. I guess it was that they, there was something magical about them that, that, that the fans just couldn't get enough of it and soaked it up. And for me, I was, you know, I was, and always lucky all all through my career from the creative side where I had to, to uh, you know, to be working with guys with different temperaments, uh, different egos, uh, and 
to be successful from the creative side, you 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 know you had to have a personality that um, could react to whatever the circumstances were and not not be flustered by it or show frustration or lose your temper. Um, that just never happened with me because again it was part of my personality that that um, whatever happened I was never going to let uh, get the best of me and. And uh, thank goodness, because I, I ended up with uh, with a nice career when it was all said and done. As I've uh, as I've said, uh, I got two Hall of Fame rings that, um, you know, Hall of Fame when I first started as a 16 year old in New Jersey. Uh, Hall, Hall of Fame was baseball in Cooperstown. And it was only later on that the pro wrestling had the Hall of Fame. And the Horsemen in uh, Miami in 2012 were inducted in, as a group into the WWE Hall of Fame. And that was an incredible uh, experience because we had an outdoor show at the ballpark. And there were 60,000 people in that stadium. And, you, we, you know, we typically in wrestling didn't have... I mean, most there, there aren't that many arenas. Even I think Madison Square Garden uh, was maybe 20,000, 24,000. I don't remember. But to have 60,000 people in a ballpark sold out um, and and just the atmosphere that's generated. And, and I remember, you know, looking up and, and seeing the third deck up where at the end of the stage, people could look up they could look down and see me and, and at, at the end closest to where the stage was, you know, I could see the people and they're up holding up the four fingers symbol of excellence and I'm holding four fingers and acknowledging him back. And, uh, and of course the people out in, in center field that were so far away, I couldn't see, but, um, the place was, was full. And that's, uh, that's something that, that you never, forget that those moments that that here you know here is the wrestling ring in a situation like that with 60,000 people looks tiny in the middle of a of a of a of a stadium and the people that are all the way up top in a sold out arena you know they I guess they have to have binoculars to to really appreciate whatever's going on in the ring because you there's nothing you could do the ring is what it is it's not going to be any bigger and you're certainly not going to sell tickets uh, to the 60,000 people that want to pay that could get in there to see uh, whatever whatever attraction that uh, that you're promoting at that time. Now, as far as going back to uh, the curtain call that night, you weren't mad at all that these guys are breaking character? Because this is kind of like the first time really like I can really remember, and I think a lot of the fans, that the baby faces the heels they just completely break character they do whatever they want of course hall and nash have no ramifications they're, gonna, they're not getting in trouble that's their last night in wbf they're about to head to wcw what was kind of the thought was, was vince mad were you mad like what, what like what's the the feel backstage for these guys doing this i'm uh, if, if i remember correctly vince wasn't there and uh when you when you and it was a spontaneous I, I want to say it was a spontaneous thing. Now maybe that I don't think I don't think they had in my, 
in, in mind that that's what they were going to do. It just kind of happened. And all of a sudden, here's these guys out there that are all friends. You got heels and baby faces. And, of course, my first thought is, you know, worrying about protecting the business that, mm-hmm. oh, my yep. God, here's here's upper echelon guys, heels and baby faces together out there in the ring, hugging each other. And I thought, my God, you know, we've built the business to the point that we've got the, the, these huge crowds and because we always tried to protect the business and now here they just on their own went out there and it wasn't like you could go out there and and grab somebody and halfway up the aisle and tell them to go back i mean it just it just was a situation that that got out of control and all you could do was just say oh my god i don't know how the fans are going to react to this I hope and pray that it's not going to kill the town and it didn't. And I can't, I can't explain why, whether it was the old school in me that thought that, uh, you know, uh, heels and baby faces, uh, go out there and work hard in the ring to, to create, uh, heat and, uh, and, uh, atmosphere in a match where the crowd is conditioned to, totally dislike one individual or one team and then you know being cheered cheered wildly for the other ones and now here's these this these people who yes back in the dressing room the people in the they're in the arena don't realize that they're all back there and they're all friends and it's you know you're thinking about protecting the business and is this a, an expose because these guys just I don't know I know, you know, don't they care? You know, you know, all the things that race through your mind and it, it, and I still can't explain it to this day that the fans responded for all of these guys who, and they, and I think it's a tribute to the ability talent wise of Virtually the whole talent roster from opening match all the way up to the, to the main events in that era, that they had the ability to go out there and you would think, oh, wow, the fans have seen all these guys in the ring at one time and they're, they're, they're hugging each other and how, you know, we, we, this is going to kill the town. How are we ever going to get it back? And yet on that same night in a subsequent match, a guy goes out there who's a heel and gets the typical heel response. The baby face comes out there, the heel bells out of the ring. And it's like, it's like a, a, a scenario that we work so hard to create and, and, and work very hard to try and protect and you think in a moment of them just not really thinking about what the what the uh, the consequences will be of all going in the ring and being there and embracing each other. And yet later on that same night, the people once again are conditioned to being angry and booing one guy and cheering and going crazy for the other guy. 
And to this day, I can't explain it other than that I thought I had it all figured out, been around the business for half a century, and all of a sudden, and, and, I, t and I, I tell people this, that if you ever get to the point in the business where you've been around for a long time and you figure, well, I got it all figured out, <laughs> you, better, you, you better pack your bags and go do something else hmm. because you are never going to have it figured out. There are going to be nights like that, that that just boggle the mind that you, you can't explain how you can have people who are presented in a certain way on TV that go out there, get that response, and that they all go in the ring, and they're embracing each other, and then there's intermission, and they go out there, and now it's like that other scene earlier never happened. Now they're, they're booing the one guy, and and... It's a tribute to the talent of the guys because <laughs> here they were cheering and just full of the of the moment. And after an intermission, there's a, a match where there's just two guys going out there. And and if a heel is as good as as he has to be at that level, it's to the point where you're almost almost about to get guys to come over the railing and, and in the ring because they're that angry with you. Now, if you think about this, Hall and Nash leave, they go to WCW, they form the NWO, that completely takes off. Shawn Michaels, the WWF champion at that point, Vince is investing so much in him. He thinks he's the man, he knows he's the main eventer. He's, Bret Hart is gone for the time being. It's really the Shawn Michaels show as the click is going to break up. They're going to divide and conquer, so to speak. You know, uh, Michaels is going to hopefully uh, dominate the WWF and then Hall and Nash dominate WCW. But it doesn't quite work out that way for the WWF. Shawn Michaels, if you look at it business-wise, one of the worst champions, really, money-wise and business-wise and ratings-wise in WWF history. And uh, I think a lot of people kind of forget that because years later, the way he's presented, uh, the way he's perceived and pushed and stuff, I mean, great wrestler, great talent. But at that point, Hogan turns heel, joins Hall and Nash at the NWO, and they just completely crush the WWF to the point where, you know, it's talking about bankruptcy, talking about this, to, obviously you know as well, pay cuts going on, this and that. So Shawn Michaels as champion, what, I mean, is that just on the fact that Hall and Nash and the NWO and Hogan took off so much, or is that kind of a detriment against Shawn Michaels as champion that he did not draw well at all? Well, Shawn when he first came there, came with Marty Jannetty as the Rockers. Mm -hmm. So he was, his first exposure with the, with the WWE was as a tag team wrestler. And he eventually split away. And, you know, given his, and, and he, another one similar to that would be Bret Hart. If you, if you saw some of the other guys in the dressing room and Bret Hart was there, um, he wouldn't stand out as, as a, a, a superstar. And I would say the same thing about Shawn Michaels. But they had that, again, I come back to the, you'll hear me say it time and time again, that it factor. Can't explain it. Guys either had it or they, they didn't. And it could be very frustrating for somebody who had been in the industry for half a century and, 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 Working on the creative side, it's like it would be frustrating to say, "Well, God, why couldn't I have predicted that that's what this guy was going to be?" 
but it is it's so it's it is so unpredictable and it's that thing that 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 the fans are and I and it's true they're the ultimate judge and jury and they're going to determine what it is and you, you you could try to help by you know pushing a guy on TV or giving him opportunities and and putting him in the right place or giving him a, a rub with with uh, somebody who was already an established star and move a guy up but um, it, it it's it's a crazy crazy business and so many of the stars became stars because the fans saw something in them that uh, was unique and and it's the fans that made him a star not because me or somebody else in creative okay took a guy i'm going to give him the opportunity i'm going to i'm going to help him spend some money on his ring attire and give him the big push and and there were people who tried that and it failed miserably and somebody that was just there that you didn't have what you thought was the ideal opponent for him at that time all of a sudden goes out there and you realize within a week or two these fans are in love with that guy and we need to capitalize on that and and get with a program and never could have anticipated that that was going to be the the case yeah and what about michaels at that point in 96 which he was definitely like all oh, this everything points to him being a top champion and then boom boom just not drawing well at all yeah yeah, I, I can't explain it. And, and, and there have been cases where guys were big stars in one place and then could never have that same level of success going to other areas. Mm. Didn't always happen. In fact, it, it was less likely rather than more likely because there's that intangible it factor that the, the guys that are true superstars in our industry have that thing that that I can think that I see it coming and give them every opportunity to excel, but it's not a guarantee that it's going to happen. I have to just be be vigilant and watching, and when I see that the fans see something and in a, in a, in a particular individual. Um, it would be it would be sheer stupidity on my part to say, oh well, I should have figured this out, not the fans. So I'm, you know, I'm just not going to go with the program. <laughs> that would have been that would have been stu- total stupidity on my part. When a guy goes out there that you you didn't see that with them initially, and they go out there and become and ex- far exceed anything that you ever thought they could do and become huge stars, you know, you ride the train with them. You don't say, oh, well, <laughs> I'm mad at these people because I should be able to pick out and determine who's a star, not the people. When you're a creative, that if, if you ever get where you take it personal that I'm not going to get behind a guy just because the fans are, are, are behind him, uh, you're in the wrong business. You you, mm-hmm. you just have to, to be paying attention and when it happens, recognize it and then, you know, get on that train and be a part of it. 
it's interesting what Michaels called his fans to click. I just always thought that was interesting and didn't really go over too well. But they always said the click cam and stuff like that. I just thought that was kind of funny. It's like the real backstage name of the group is the click, and he's calling his fans the click. I just I don't know if you remember that. I just always found that kind of funny. Yeah, and I guess I was blessed with a temperament that that I I never had a problem with any of those guys because if they're going out there and being successful, even if it was something of their own doing that, that, that the fans embraced and took off with, I'm there to just recognize that situation. And God forbid it would be counterproductive of me to say, well, this wasn't my idea, or I think somebody else over here is more deserving or better, or God, I think they look better and everything. You know, if, if you're in, in, in the, on the creative side and have that kind of a mindset or my, or attitude, I could tell you from the get go, you're going to fail. <laughs> and it's a, it's a tough enough business without, uh, making it tougher on yourself than it has to be. There's such like interesting rumors and stuff about you know Michaels at, at the time and why he was champ and you know it could be a lot of bitterness and some wrestlers you know, who knows if it's really true or if it's just crazy rumors and stuff. But they always say like, oh, Michaels wasn't drawing that well, but yet he always had Vince's ear. Michaels wasn't doing too hot and you know, like, the ratings weren't going good against WCW and the NWO but he continually got a push and he was always in in um, Vince's ears and stuff was there any sort of uh, anything odd or anything as far as HBK and Vince because that is kind of a weird thing that he's not really drawing that well but yet he's getting the push he's getting the political power yeah. but was there anything between them because it always seemed like it is true that Michael's always had Vince's ear yeah I think Kevin Nash was one was the one that I saw um, just uh, nurtured a relationship with Vince, and he he was everything that Vince admires in a wrestler in in the terms of his height, his size, uh, and so if you looked and say, well, who is Vince going to be the most excited to? to be successful, Shawn Michaels or Kevin Nash. <laughs> Logic would tell you if you've been around Vince for any length of time at all, it would be, it would be Kevin Nash. Because, mm-hmm. uh, I mean, Vince always trained hard himself and uh, wanted to be the best physical specimen that he could be. And um, he, he, you know, he, he, he trained hard. He did. And he, he admired guys that uh, had that same mindset. I was somebody that, ju- I, to this day, I think if I walked into a gym, they would say, can I help you? You lost. <laughs> get, out, get, out, get out of here. I never, I, my whole career, I never went to a gym. Never. Hmm. And I didn't, uh, the only thing that I did, and... Uh, I attribute that to uh, an old-timer, Art Nelson. And Art was like, he was gruff, and he was uh, had no patience for uh, for 
people that he thought did stupid things, which a lot of young wrestlers do stupid things. And he was, he was into saving his money, made a lot of trips by himself because he just didn't have patience with, with guys that, uh, that he just would shake his head and not have much respect for. And when I got to Charlotte, like I say, I was almost 28 years old. So I was a little bit older and kept my mouth shut. I, you know, a lot of young guys, you know, you know, they, they get in the business a little bit and all of a sudden, if you're somewhere where, you know, you're talking over a match with your opponents and young guys will all of a sudden speak up and want input. And some of the old timers resented that they, they, they didn't, you know, you had to earn their trust and you had, and it took time to get to the level where you could, you know, speak up and express, express your opinion. I, and again, like I said, I was almost 28 years old when I started. So I was just so happy to be living my dream. And at 28, almost 28 years old, being a full-time wrestler for the first time in my, in my career. And I, I, I sometimes, it, you know, we lay in bed at night and I think I was six months from my 28th birthday when I started full-time as a wrestler. And after 20 years of being active, I, I look back and I, and cause I, I, I kept records for tax purposes and there was a, a week at a glance book that has one week at a time. And I would write the town and, uh, you know, how many miles and if there were tolls and if I stayed over in a hotel, what my expense was. And, uh, and I would write down if I you know, later on as a manager, I just put manage or if I wrestled, I would, so I could always look back for, you know, if, if I had wrestled the guy and so it had a dual purpose, but I could look back and see if I'd wrestled somebody else in that town, the, pr the previous show. And, you know, if I won, lost DQ, whatever. And, um, not to, not to the degree that the Jim Cornette kept records, but you know, a, a similar idea. And I, and I kept all those, all those, uh, we could have glanced books. And at the end of the year, when I was doing my taxes, uh, at the end of each week, I would write at the top the mileage for that week that I traveled, and then I would write what my my gross pay was for the week. And so when I was doing it, I I could sit down and with a sheet of paper and just have 52 uh, column 52 uh, entries with uh, the miles that I traveled, and I could you know quickly with a little calculator be able to to know how far I traveled to be able to claim mileage. Cause that's that we, we used to carpool, but for tax purposes, I would put down every night that the mileage and tolls and whatever is if I drove to the town by myself <laughs> every night. And you had, you almost had to do that in order to, um, to not give the government all the money. And I, I was, well, I never got audited, but I thought if I do, okay, this is where I was. You can see on the advertising, I was there and this is how the mileage and, um, you know, they, they, they weren't out. So, well, let me, let me see your car. Let me go see what the odometer reading is. Well, according to that, you should have triple that mileage on your odometer, you know, and you've had this car for a while. No, the, 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 that never happened. I mean, did, did I ever think that that could happen? Probably in the beginning I did, but after a while, that that's how you didn't give all the money to the, to the government by, 
uh, carpooling. I might drive every third day and two guys go with me and then another day uh, and somebody else would drive. And also, you know, I would drive and I look in the mirror and the guys in the back seat are out cold uh, getting sleep. And if you had to drive every town every day, there were probably would have been a lot more wrecks and a lot more deaths on the highway. So it was a, a unique, unique business. That is for sure. And, and eventually, you know, you would follow Hall and Nash to WCW with a little bit of help from Hall and Nash and kind of get in the door there. Yeah. Was, was it surprising to you? Like you mentioned, you know, when you were 28 and, and you wouldn't kind of necessarily knock on the promoter's door and go in and talk. Were you surprised at all that like a guy like Nash or Michaels, who were pretty young, not really young, young to the business, but, you know, probably around your age at this point, if you think about it, um, that they would just walk into Vince's office and just talk to him. And I mean, does that just the times change in the business or were you surprised at all? Uh, like easily and openly, they would just talk to Vince about their problems. Um, times changed. And, um, I, I, and it wasn't like I thought my role was threatened because they're going in and having one-on-one with Vince. Uh, I had enough things to do that I didn't look at it as, as all of a sudden Vince saying one day, well, why, why am I have this person here? I, I can meet with these guys because it wasn't like Vince had to meet with everybody at every show. Uh, there, there were only certain guys that developed a relationship with Vince and, and Kevin Nash and Scott Hall were two of them. Uh, and then of course, Shawn Michaels later on, Bret Hart would be another one that, you know, that had a, uh, had a closer relationship with Vince because of, uh, where they were on the card and, and the money that they drew and, the, and enjoyed a certain status. I think that's probably a good kind of uh, stopping off point, a good ending point for this conversation about the click in the uh, WWF. And of course, as far as plugs, if you just want to say, go to prowrestlingtees.com slash JJ Dillon, a pro wrestling tea store has been open. I highly suggest you pick up a JJ shirt. Also, check us out on Patreon. A Patreon page has been set up where you can become a patron and support the show. Of course, check out our website, tmptempire.com. On that site, you will see a link to the JJ site, which is jjdillon.com. And I highly suggest when you get on there, buy JJ's book. One of the best wrestling books is called Wrestlers Are Like Seagulls from McMahon to McMahon. Of course, you can email us all your questions and comments at jjdillonpodcast at gmail.com. Any bookings, questions, comments, concerns, please just say once again, it's jjdillonpodcast at gmail.com. You can follow me on Twitter at Two Man Power Trip. And JJ, I know you're pretty much done for some personal appearances for the year, but do you know kind of when you're lining up for 2020? You're ready accepting bookings and kind of ready to, to get 2020 started and rolling as far as getting out there and signing and meeting and greeting? Yeah, I, like I say, Charlie uh, Armstrong Hartman, uh, he, he wrestled some and, and promotes, and now more more promotes. And um, I've, I have a great comfort level with him. He's uh, a, you know, a quality guy to do business with. And he, I know that he's already, uh, uh, you know, planting the seeds with, uh, with some potential dates, uh, in Florida, uh, because of, uh, WrestleMania being in, in, uh, Tampa this year. So looking forward to the new year, it, you know, it's kind of a, 
uh, an easy, easy, easy month le- leading up to uh, Christmas and New Year's, and uh, th- that's a good thing to be able to kick back, spend time with family, and then uh, after a, a, a good rest, um, you know, jump in with both feet uh, with the new year. And um, you know, I just uh, I, I I look forward to you know four horsemen opportunities uh, anytime that I can be with Barry. Uh, we've become very close. He had his first professional match with me and, uh, it's almost, uh, and, and Arn, Arn kind of, uh, I think he one time said that I'm, I'm, I'm like the brother that he never had. And that's how I feel about him. I'm, I'm really, really close to Arn Anderson and, uh, have really come to appreciate what a what a superb talent he is not only uh in the ring as a performer but uh you know just knowing the big picture and uh in terms of uh, he's he's had success you know running towns and and booking territories he's just very very savvy um and i and i i enjoy being on the road and, and being around those guys we we, we really generally enjoy each other, uh, each other's company, and the four horsemen thing is—it's uh, a legitimate thing that comes along once in a lifetime. And uh, I'm just happy that I was the right place, at the right time, and uh, uh, enjoying the holidays and, and looking forward to the new year. And uh, I really enjoy being on the road with Arn and with Tully and with Barry. And uh, it just—the uh, the horseman thing is. Uh, is not just a marketing thing. We, you know, we're 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 all genuine close friends, and I think that's part of why we've enjoyed the success we've had. And and I think the new year will be uh, will be another good banner year for us. Absolutely, well said. And before we get to the new year, you could join us every Saturday night at six oh five for a JJ, the JJ Dylan podcast. This podcast was a presentation of the two-man power trip of wrestling's podcast empire.